want to welcome you if you're visiting with us this morning. Uh, I want to encourage you at the end of the morning, if you are uh, visiting and you haven't done this yet, maybe you're in a second or third visit, but if you haven't done this yet, please visit that table on the way out. Uh, we just want to put some information in your hands about who we are. Uh, we've tried to sort of capture in one uh, resource a bag of things about us. Uh, it's not going to take the place of actually connecting to us as a people, but it will give you a sense of what we believe, what we're about, kind of how we move together. I think we're still doing a little gift card in there also to Chick-fil-A, so you can't, a little enticement there, you can't go today, obviously, but maybe this week you could go and empty that bag and have a meal on us and just kind of take a look at who we are. So we're glad you're here. Uh, let me share with you also, uh, someone brought this up to me recently, uh, that it, it helps sometimes to sort of just kind of go back and folks that are here every week kind of know all this. I'm Ben McGraw. I'm the guy that's usually doing this, not uh, the only guy. This pulpit is open to uh, a handful of men in our, our body that preach regularly, but I'm the guy that's usually up here. And um, we largely, not completely, but largely preach expositorily, meaning that we move through a book of the Bible. We do have topical series from time to time, but for the most part, we are moving through a book of the Bible. Uh, I think we spent eight or nine years in the book of John, um, three or four years in the book of Hebrews, uh, a couple years in Ephesians, uh, about six months in Job, and um, now we're in the book of Matthew this morning. So if you're kind of wondering where we are in the Bible, uh, we find that if you go to the Bible and just try to figure out what it's saying, what God is saying to us through the Word, what it actually uh, means then we find that in some crazy way that he ends up ministering to us in a way that's really surgical. Like I hear from different families and different individuals how a sermon that wasn't about what you're going through was what God used to bring a, a, a medicine, a, a balm that you may not have gotten had we just entered this room dealing with a topic. So there's nothing in the, in the world wrong with topical preaching, uh, but it's something that we sort of lean in the direction of expository preaching. So we'll be in the book of Matthew this morning. I'm going to begin in prayer, uh, but I want to just encourage you first with a thought. I want you to think back to the last time you were hungry. If you're like me, you really have to think about it because, man, I stay in front of it. I don't want to get hungry. I had to think about it when I was going to ask this question. Monday this last week, no, Tuesday, I think, was the last time I was hungry, but it had been some time before that. I went to an appointment about 8.39 in the morning. I'd had breakfast. Went to an appointment about 8.39 in the morning and uh, didn't get to eat lunch until like 2 o'clock, and I thought I was going to die. <laughs> I mean, I really thought I was going to die. But I, I'm, I'm sharing my embarrassment, my embarrassing truth about I don't uh, go without food very much for the purpose of maybe you can connect to a time when you went without food or you were, for whatever reason, self-imposed. Maybe it was fasting uh, for uh, spiritual purposes, prayer purposes. Maybe it was a time where you just couldn't get food for one reason or another, traveling or something like that. And what I want you to do is connect to sort of that feeling, that deep pit in your stomach where you're like, man, that's empty in there. The thing is groaning and making noises, and your body's telling you, you need to find food. You might even be able to connect to some emotions that you had at the time. And you've got this deep feeling in here of this emptiness, but you might, ought to be, able to, you might be able to connect to some, maybe some anger even. <laughs> That's where the term hangry comes from. I mean, when you get hungry so bad, you get angry. 
you might be able to think back to some of those emotions and how you responded to your hunger. And I want you to keep those thoughts and maybe connecting to some of those emotions in view as we move into our message this morning. So let's pray. God, we are thankful for our time together. I'm just putting it in front of you, anticipating you to show up and do something great, Lord. I'm thankful that we began the morning with hands out and open, Lord. I pray that we will keep that disposition in the receive mode this morning, that we will be ready to hear from you. Lord, I pray that in some ways that you will foster and create in us a hunger that we can't have on our own, a hunger for you and a hunger for your son, and a hunger for this story. Lord, we beg for those things this morning. Lord, also this morning, I want to pray for another pastor in another church in our community. I want to pray for Randy Daw and his church. Uh, Lord, I, we just want to lift them up this morning, knowing what Randy's going through uh, with his brain tumor. Lord, we entrust him and his family to you. Lord, we ask you that if you fits your will, we recognize that you are able to Heal in a moment, in a blink. Lord, we ask you to heal this man and restore him to the work. And Lord, if you have a different plan, we ask you that we and his friends and his church and his family and his community can connect to your plan, a glory plan somehow. We entrust Randy and his family to you. And we entrust this time to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I don't want you to turn to Matthew yet. You can go ahead and put a bookmark in there if you'd like. We're going to, I'll kind of give you a little plan for the morning. Uh, We're going to begin in the book of Exodus. Uh, We're going to look at a a passage in Exodus. We're going to look at a passage in Deuteronomy. And we're going to try and figure out another wilderness before we figure out the wilderness that we're looking at in Matthew chapter 4. Okay, this passage that we're going to be looking at this morning in Matthew chapter 4 is the temptation of Christ really in three parts, and we're going to consider the first temptation, the first of three temptations this morning. So we'll be in sort of a wilderness series for the next three weeks. I just had this thought, if Jesus could go without food and and fast for 40 days, then we could spend a few minutes on three Sundays consecutively taking a look at what actually happened there, trying to make sense of that. So you can turn to Exodus chapter 16. Exodus chapter 16. In order to make sense of the wilderness where we are in Matthew chapter 4, we need to look back 1,500 years to another wilderness, the wilderness of sin. That's the name of it, not not some act that happened. Plenty of sin took place there, but it's actually the title of it. The the name of the wilderness is S-I-N. Exodus chapter 16. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of sin which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. All right, this is, I'm trying to kind of connect to this and really climb into what's going on here and just trying to get a sense of what these guys are feeling. And I really, I think the bottom line is what they're dealing with is these guys are just really hungry. And in some ways, they're asking in a, a way that's not actually ideal. They're saying, Moses, do you have a plan for dinner? Aaron, are we ordering out? 
Or do you have a plan? I mean, what, what are we doing here? Uh, Moses and Aaron, are we going to do that last resort thing if we don't have a plan of making breakfast for dinner? What is the plan here? What are we doing? Because we are hungry. They're about 45 days into their wilderness experience. Okay? They didn't fast for 45 days. They left Egypt with tons of supplies. If you go back and read the account, you see that they're, they're leaving with the plunder of Egypt. But they must be getting to a point where the supplies are running low and these folks are getting hangry. I'm just imagining how these conversations must have gone around a campfire, around a, in a tent. You know, they say, man, I, you know, God is great. He's done some amazing stuff. I mean, that whole Red Sea thing was pretty awesome. Folding that sea in on the, day, on the armies of, Israel, of, of Egypt. But man, I sure miss the pots of meat from Egypt. Those pots of meat were delicious. Those Egyptians could really get it done. And I sure miss that bread, all the bread we could eat while we were stuffed back in Egypt. Forgetting the part that we were also, by the way, slaves in Egypt making bricks. I'm imagining how those conversations would go down. Well, they cried out to Moses and Aaron, and they cried out to God, and God gave them bread from heaven. You know the story. You're probably familiar with the story. Bread actually came from the sky. It's called manna. They'd wake up in the morning and find this this thin crust on the ground. It was actually bread that they could take and eat. He also gave them meat in the form of quail daily. All you can eat, quail. If you just hear that term, just that phrase right there, you got to think, man, that's pretty amazing. All you can eat quail. The only day where they didn't have that provision was on the Sabbath, and there were some pretty specific instructions about that day. Don't bother going to gather because there'll be no man or quail out on those days. Gather twice the amount on Friday, the day before the Sabbath. I'm trying to imagine how this should have gone. As they responded the way they responded, I really wish that they would have just said, period, Moses and Aaron, we're just hungry. We're just really hungry. Our supplies have run out. God blessed us with the plunder of Egypt, but we've really gotten hungry, Moses and Aaron. But we trust God who delivered us from Egypt. We trust the same God that parted the Red Sea, that he will give us what we need when we need it. We just want to let you know we're hungry. I'd like to think that that would be the way I would respond, but I know myself better. Here's how it goes down in our house. It's funny, uh, uh, on, we have periods of time in our home where we're like really faithful with a, a meal plan. Like the Fresh 20 is the bomb. If you've never tried the Fresh 20, they tell you the rest of the, the ingredients to go buy and you're eating these amazingly fresh meals. I'm getting no kickback from that. I'm just telling you it's really good, really good stuff. And that's what we're doing. But sometimes we're not doing anything. I mean, usually Christy is really on top of it. And those times where we don't really have a plan, and I can kind of see we don't have a plan, I can say, hey, Christy, do we have a plan for dinner? And she'd look at me and say, and says, no, I don't have a plan. This is like 4 p.m. And I try to keep my facial expression the same without showing what I'm feeling inside is horror, terror. I'm going to starve. She's kind of funny. Sometimes she'll turn right back around on me and say, do you have a plan? And they're like, no, girl, I'm not a girl. I'm a dude. That's what girls do. <laughs> if you're visiting for the first time, I promise you, that's not like, we're not like that. It's just a total joke. That's why we can all laugh. I promise you, I, I cook sometimes. Okay, so I'm imagining how this could have gone down, but I'm imagining myself and knowing how I roll that I probably would have been grumbling as well. 
Well, I'd like to think that, that the nation of Israel um, did better than I would have done, but they really didn't. Okay, maybe I can just give you some references and you can just listen for a moment, but I want you to kind of listen how things went with the nation of Israel in regards specifically to food. Let me just share, or, and drink. I should, should add water in there as well. Let me share a few passages with you, and I'll give you the references so you can look them up later, but I encourage you for the next couple minutes to just listen. So passage in Exodus and a couple or two or three in Numbers. In chapter 17, just the next chapter, after food falls from the sky and quail are on the, the desert floor, all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord. And they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Okay, first it's food. Now we're dealing with water. Let's see how the rest of this goes down. The book of Numbers gives us some windows into how this unfolded, what, what it was like for the nation of Israel and how they moved. And here's a couple of passages in the book of Numbers. First in Numbers chapter 11. Verses 4 through 6. The people start complaining. It says, The rabble was among them, had a strong craving. And the people of Israel wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, that's a food, the onions and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up and there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. This this. This, this food that fell from the sky to look at. Man, these guys like have a whole menu that they're recalling from Egypt. A few chapters later in chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses. And the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bring us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let's choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Hopefully, hopefully you're seeing a theme here. It's not just in regards to food, but it's especially in regards to food. In this case, it has to do with their concerns about safety. Toward the end of the book of Numbers in chapter 21... It says this, when the Canaanite king, the king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming by way of Atharim, he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. Okay, concern about safety, but watch this theme emerge. And Israel vowed a vow to the Lord and said, if you will indeed give this people into my hand, then I will devote their cities to destruction. They make God a promise. And the Lord heeded the voice of Israel. What a strange word. The Lord heeded Israel's request. And gave over the Canaanites, and they devoted them and their cities to destruction. So the name of the place was called Hormah. Okay, watch what goes down right after this. I mean, right after this. From Mount Hor, they set out by way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness, where the, for there's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food? Man, these guys clearly have some serious eating problems. I think what's at the heart of it is they have some serious freedom problems. 
There's a movie, one of my favorite movies, and I'm not encouraging it, but if you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about, the, this, this movie, Shawshank Redemption. It's what a, such a great movie. There was a guy in the movie, his name was Brooks. This guy, Brooks, spent 50 years in prison, and he comes up for parole, and he's just losing his mind because he's scared to death. How am I going to survive out there? Well, he comes up for parole, and he ends up leaving prison, and he ends up taking his own life. You might remember how the story goes. The guys are sitting around talking about Brooks and talking about his response to parole. And, and the guys are confused about why he's so worried about it. And Morgan Freeman, I forget the, the name of the guy that, that he played, but Morgan Freeman speaks into this. He says, man, what happened here is Brooks had been institutionalized. He says, these walls, you know, at first you hate them. He's looking around at the prison walls. He says, at first you hate them, but then you become comfortable with them and then before you realize that you can't live without them he said Brooks had become institutionalized I mean I wonder Wes what happened to the nation of Israel they didn't know how to live free they pined for slavery where they had full bellies driven by their appetites rather than live in the wilderness free dependent on the God that delivered them they had been institutionalized. Let's see how it goes later on. I want you to turn to, the, to Deuteronomy chapter 8. I mentioned Deuteronomy 8 as another place that we were going to go to sort of set the stage for Matthew chapter 4. And I want to give you a sense, too, of proportion this morning because I, I have a little bit lengthy intro, and there might be the thought that I got this big, that I had this big sermon on Matthew chapter 4. The biggest part of the sermon is the intro. And then Matthew chapter 4 just sort of lays open. So I want you to stay with me before we get to Matthew chapter 4, and you'll appreciate it when you did, or that you did. Deuteronomy chapter 8. Let's fast forward to the end of the wilderness wanderings. Those, those passages that I read just now were excerpts from the wilderness experience. The nation of Israel was not doing good with food. They were not doing good with trusting God for his provision on his time, in his time, and on his terms. So let's see what happens at the end of their wilderness wanderings. The book of Deuteronomy is written just before they go into the promised land. And let's see what Moses has to say in chapter 8, verse 1. He says, The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to your fathers. It's like he's giving them marching orders as they go into the promised land. He says, You shall remember the whole way, a nice connection, to Clint's encouragement this morning. Remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and he let you hunger. Okay, I want you to just kind of camp out on that. Those three words. He let you hunger. And he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Okay, he let them hunger, and he fed them with manna to teach them. I mean, specifically, he says, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word 
that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Okay, we fast forwarded to the, to the end of their wilderness experience, and he's calling them in this first verse to obedience. He's calling them in the second verse to remember, and then he adds in why. Why did, he, why did God let you hunger, Israel? Why did he let you hunger and then experience food falling from the sky? He did this to humble them. It was purposeful. He was not just messing with them. He did this to humble them, it says. He did this to test them whether or not they could obey him. And third, he did this to teach them that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the Lord. He's teaching them to trust God so much so that his words are more valuable than actual food. (laughs) Man, what a great picture. He's teaching them to trust God so much so that his words are more important to them than food. He's teaching them to trust them by ordaining seasons without. Can you see where we're going this morning? He's ordaining seasons of lack, seasons of without, ordained seasons of hunger so that he could make them know that they should live by his very words more than by bread. Man, I'd like to think that at the end of this wilderness experience that this, this charge from Moses was really effective. I'd like to think that, man, as they go into the promised land, as they finish the rest of the Old Testament, that, man, they really turn the corner. And they were handling food well. They're handling trusting the Lord well. They're handling their, their appetites well. But let me just kind of summarize the rest of the Old Testament for you in this statement. Israel didn't do very well with these tests and ended up in exile. Most of them exile to Assyria. The rest of them exile into Babylon. They didn't handle this charge well. They didn't handle this notion of trusting God well. And it really shouldn't be a surprise to us. Because if we can believe that Israel's story is connected to the human story, then you realize Adam and Eve did the very same thing. They didn't do anything different than we would have done and do anything different than Adam and Eve actually did. Man, Adam and Eve, they weren't even hungry. Think about this. They're surrounded by garden and a garden full of trees of fruit hanging from every branch of every kind imaginable. And they too had food problems. And they weren't even hungry. Israel didn't obey God. And they too were exiled just like Adam and Eve from the garden. They were exiled from the promised land. Man, here's what's hit me. Here's what's hit me. and It sort of sets up this morning for Matthew chapter 4. And you can go ahead and turn there. And go ahead and turn because I want this statement. And I'm going to turn there too. Because I want this statement to hit you as we're landed now in Matthew chapter 4. Adam and Eve... Need a new eater. Israel needed a new eater, a new and better eater. Someone who could live on more than bread alone, who hears and obeys and trusts every word that comes from the Lord. Enter Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. We're just looking at the first three verses today. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came, and I said three verses, actually four. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Okay, first of all, Matthew is taking us to this Old Testament story of Israel and their problems with food. 
If you don't see the parallels, let me just kind of help just draw a couple out. 40 years in the wilderness, 40 days in the wilderness. The same spirit does what he does. The same tempter also. The same tempter that duped Adam and Eve in the garden. The same, very same tempter that duped Israel with their food and appetite issues is the very same tempter that leads him into the wilderness. And he's here tempting him with food sin, more food sin. He says, you're God the Son. You don't need to be hungry. You're God. He reminds him, calling him the Son of God. Man, you don't need to be hungry. Just turn these stones into food. You don't need to wait on your father's provision. Just go ahead and bypass him. You're God after all. Be like the God that you already are. But we have the same spirit involved. We have the same tempter involved. But we have a very different son involved in this case. With this food scenario, we have a very different son. He's fasted 40 days. He is far hungrier than Adam and Eve. <laughs> He's far hungrier than freshly delivered Israel. Man, and just consider this. He was actually hungry. There's a beautiful passage that connects to this, this notion that though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and actually being hungry. Man, 40 days and 40 nights. I asked you to consider the last time you were hungry. I've never fasted uh, for extended periods of time, and I have to confess to you, I don't recall that I've ever fasted for spiritual purposes before this morning. And I'm just talking a morning, so don't like, oh, look, look at him. I'm like embarrassed to share that. <laughs> I've, like I didn't eat breakfast, okay? The longest I've ever gone without food was not on purpose. I was in a training event, a training exercise in the Marine Corps in the high desert of California. I went five days without food, I, not something I could have done on my own. It was something that was forced on me. Now, imagining the torture of a very real human, very much God, but very much man, absolutely man, experiencing 40 days of hunger and feeling those pangs that we feel, a sympathetic high priest able to uh, uh, understand and uh, feel the feels that we felt was very much hungry. And he responds this way in a simple but unwavering response. He revealed that while being as tempted as any man would be, he was doing what no man could do. The way he responded is he's, he's responding in a way that no man could respond, that no Israel could respond. He's saying no when all, else have, all others have said yes. We've got to really enjoy that, that he said no where all others have said yes to Satan's best attempts and all that on an empty stomach. A 40 days empty stomach. I think we have our new and better eater right here. Amen? So we'll make sure everybody's kind of tracking. We have our new and better eater right here in the person of Jesus Christ. All right. So I've got three application points. I told you it was going to be a brief exposition once we get to Matthew 4. The first application point is Matthew's point must be our point first and foremost. Matthew's making the point in this old ancient gospel, this 2,000-year-old gospel, that Jesus was faithful where Israel failed. Jesus was faithful where Adam failed, if you wanted to pan out. And Jesus was faithful where we have failed. Enjoying that about Jesus has a name. 
It's actually a term for that. When you really enjoy that, like if right now you're thinking, yeah, he has handled temptation and, and appetites and cravings and things that I felt like I had to have a whole lot better than I did. If you're enjoying that right now, there's a name for that, and the name actually is called worship. Like if you're sitting there and that makes your heart glad, there's a name for that. It's called worship. Man, see this son, this new and better son in the wilderness. See him without the creature comforts. See him solitary. Man, he just left the crowds at his baptism. And I can't imagine that there wasn't this laud, this excitement, and here he is. And then he walks off by himself into the wilderness. See him there alone. No stove, no tent, no creature comforts at all, no food. See him hungry. See him praying. See him suffering, and yet see him obeying where all else have failed. And see him look Satan square in the face and shut him down. And if you're seeing that and you're enjoying that right now, you're worshiping. Secondly, first of all, is Jesus was faithful where Israel failed. Secondly, God tests his people. Okay, God tests his people. I don't know if you're paying attention to how this thing unfolded, but maybe you noticed that he was led into the spirit, or excuse me, led into the wilderness by the spirit to be tempted by the devil. I just said it earlier. He didn't lead him into the wilderness to go camping. He led him into the wilderness to be tempted. And God also let the nation of Israel experience hunger as a test. What Satan is doing with a temptation, God turns into a test. What Satan means for evil, God means for good. This thing that's in your life that you're right now saying, I'm about to lose it, and Satan is having his way with me. God is taking that very same event, and he's using it to strengthen you and to make you dependent on him. You remember how what he was doing with Israel? He said, I'm doing this to humble you. I'll let you get hungry, to humble you, to test what's in your hearts, and to teach you to obey me and feast on my words more than you even feast on food. Man, think of Jesus learning obedience through what he suffered. What Satan means for evil, God means for good. I want you to just consider this for a moment. Whatever trials you're going through right now, and they're all over the, all over the map in this room, I know a lot of them, but I don't know know near all of them. Whatever trials you're going through in this room right now, God could end like that. With a, a word. You've got to acknowledge that God is that powerful and that able. He could end that trial and that thing that you're going through right now. Or that thing that you're watching going through in someone else's life. It's like, Lord, please intervene. You got to know, first off, that he can with a spoken word. And I want you to think that if, he's, if he isn't, that he could actually be doing something there to test you and grow you and strengthen you. Man, God's not messing with you. So you need to hold on to him and you need to trust him in that trial. Over the years, I've held, to, held a passage dear, uh, and I'll share this passage with you from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. I want you to listen to the flow of this passage, and I want you maybe to kind of connect some of the hungers that you're feeling, some of the seasons of lack that you may be experiencing right now, I want you to connect it to this passage. and sit. I think it's in a nice way sort of summarizes this second point, that God tests his people. What Satan is doing over here with temptation, 
God is doing with the test. Listen to this. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. You see comfort and affliction there. You see hunger and manna. Right? You see them both right there. He's got them both in tension. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Sufferings and comfort. Lack and provision. If we are afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. If we're comforted, it's for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that you, that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Now watch this next phrase. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction, suffering, lack, hunger that we experienced in Asia. Paul is speaking of he and his church planning team. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Man, they're hungry. Connect those images that we've connected this morning. They're hungry. Indeed, we felt we had received a death sentence, but that, that affliction, that thing that God allowed in our lives, that hunger, that test, was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. You can't learn that lesson without those seasons of lack. You can't learn that God's going to provide food from the sky without seasons of hunger. Man, see God's intentionality in seasons of testing. This fall, my brother encouraged me, my younger brother um, encouraged me with a quote that I think sort of nicely brings out what God does with difficult times. He said, fair seas do not a good sailor make. Fair seas do not a good sailor make. Lord, make us good sailors, right? However you have to go about it, make us good sailors for your glory. The third application point this morning is to consider, to appreciate. I want you to just consider this. Appreciate the live-in tutors of appetites. Appreciate the relentless live-in tutors of appetites. I was thinking, as I wanted to kind of develop this point, I was thinking about the, this famine theme in our Bibles. If you've read the Old Testament, maybe you're doing a read-through-the-Bible plan, and you, if you're paying attention, you realize famine comes up a lot. Just right off the top of my head, I could think of three. Abraham went through famine. You remember that whole experience? Hey, Sarah, tell them you're my sister. They had to go off to a foreign land. Tell them, you know, let's just tell them you're my sister. That whole thing, that was due to famine. He had to leave the land he'd been promised. Okay, his son Isaac had to do the same thing due to famine. Hey, tell them you're my sister. <laughs> same thing, deja vu. Okay? And then Jacob had endured famine and ended up in Egypt, in Goshen. Those are the three famines that I could recall. There are actually 13 famines in the Bible. 13. The fourth is in the book of Judges, where, or actually in the time of the Judges, in the book of Ruth, chapter 1, verse 1. Famine. God did something remarkable in a time of hunger and famine. There was famine in David's day. There was famine in Elijah's day. There were three different famines in Elisha's day in different places. There was famine in, Zach, in, in Zedekiah, or Zechariah's day. There were famine in Nehemiah's day. There's famine actually that's so common apparently that it's actually used in the prodigal son parable. Famine. And then lastly, there was famine in the Roman Empire in Paul's day. Man, what is God doing with famine and hunger? There's a theme in our Bibles that we are so stuffed, I wonder, that we miss it. 
I mean, literally, I feel like I wonder if I'm just so stuffed and numbed with all the food and access that I have that I've never experienced this thing that he's given us, this innate thing that we need, this thing called an appetite and hunger. Man, it seems like he's just given us a great live-in tutor with this thing called hunger and our need for food. I want you to notice that the nation of Israel was not sinful just by being hungry. There's nothing wrong with the nation of Israel saying, hey, Moses and Aaron, man, we're famished. We're out of supplies and we are just really hungry. And they weren't sinful thing that you need that helps you. And I want you to just connect those three things, frequency, intensity, and something that you need to this thought. Let this thing in all of us, this, there's a rare person that I know that just like forgets to eat. And there's just something wrong with you. I just want to tell you, there's something wrong with you. The rest of us don't have that problem. And I'm, I'm being facetious. If you don't, forget, don't, don't take that personally, I was just kidding. Most of us don't forget to eat. Let this thing in you, this desire and this drive to eat, be a great tutor. This, let this tutor tutor to seek better food, to seek it frequently. The food that comes from every word that comes from the mouth of God, to seek it frequently. First of all, to diagnose those intense feelings of hunger in your lives. To diagnose them and say, it sounds like I really need to go eat. And I need to go eat some eternal food, some words that come from God. And third, know that seeing him and seeking him is something that you really need, like you need food. Just a simple, beautiful and simple picture. Let this thing in you called hunger be the tutor that it is. We're going to have our supper this morning, and I want to share a passage that sort of connects to where we've been in John chapter 6. I uh, just want to just kind of give a little bit of context. I, I think actually I'll just kind of dive into the story here in chapter 6, beginning in verse 22. Jesus has just fed the multitudes. Okay, they're full of loaves and fishes. Jesus crosses the Sea of Galilee, walking on the water. Okay, you know that context. He gets around to the, or he gets to the other side with the disciples. You know, he climbs in the boat, gets to the other side. The crowds, though, have to walk. <laughs> they walk around the Sea of Galilee. They come to Capernaum, and this is where we, fa- or this is where we sort of dive in here, beginning in. Chapter 6, verse 22. On the very next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples. They're marveling. That was like a miracle. How did you get here? Because we didn't see you get in the boat. But that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boat and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side, okay, we got these crowds full of full stomachs, or full stomachs from being fed the night before. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Like, really, what they're asking is, how in the world did you get across the Sea of Galilee? How did you get to Capernaum? Because we didn't see you get in the boat. Well, Jesus doesn't even deal with their question. He goes immediately to what's really driving them there. Jesus answered them saying, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. The wrong appetite has led you to follow me over here. And he's going to lead them to the right appetite or the better appetite. It's not a replacement, but the better appetite. 
It says, do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. There's not a collection of works that will get you there. There's one work. Believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe? I mean, just, just kind of think about it. They, they were just fed with loaves and fishes the day before. Can you do a, a, some sort of miracle, Jesus, to show us that you're really saying who you are, you really are who you say you are? What sign will you do to convince us so that we can believe you? What work will you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it's written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives to you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Let's distribute the elements.